0: 1 Samuel 24, verses 1 through 22. The title of this message is Providence or Temptation. Which is it? Now, for those that don't know, providence is God's protective care. It's God providing and helping out, looking out for us, watching over us. And temptation is the desire to do something wrong or unwise. And that's what we're going to see in this passage David's presented with this situation, but he doesn't know if it's a God's providence or is it it's a temptation. Now I want to remind you, David is on the run for his life. He was anointed at a young age, possibly around 13, to be the future king. But now he's probably in his mid-20s, running from Saul because Saul is trying to hunt him down. And David is a man after God's own heart. He wants to do things God's way. He wants to please the Lord. And when you're after God's heart, you won't be after power. You won't be after temptation. You won't be after different things. And I want to open up with a quote that I want to unpack as we go throughout this passage. And it's one from Sandy Adams. I heard this at the pastor's conference and it was powerful. He said, just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. And we'll see this kind of unfold throughout this passage. So it's broken down into three sections. Verses 1 through 7, we see David and Saul's encounter. David's been running from Saul this whole time, and now they encounter one another. But the way they encounter each other is very interesting. So let's look at verses 1 and 2. It says... Now it happened when Saul had returned from following the Philistines that it was told him saying, Take note, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men on the rocks of the wild goats. So here is the setting of this scene or the stage of what's taking place. And you can see on the map next to the dead sea point number 13 here is the place of engedi that is actually an oasis on the west side of the dead sea there is a waterfall there there's many caves there and it's very possible that david was familiar with this location because of his sheep and getting them water from time to time and so this is what's taking place Saul gets word that David's in this location, and he gathers 3,000 men. Now, these are the top soldiers. These are Marines. These are Navy SEALs, the best of the best. And he goes, we're going to hunt this guy down. We are going to get him. And so they go to seek David. But look at verses 3 through 5. Verse 3 says, So he came to the sheepfolds by the road where there was a cave, and Saul went in to attend to his needs. David and his men were staying in the recesses of the cave. Then David's men said to him, This is the day of the Lord, which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand that you may do to him as it seems good to you. And David rose secretly and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. Now it happened afterward that David's heart troubled him because he had cut Saul's robe. So here's what's taking place. David goes, is hiding in this cave. In verse three, it says, Saul went to this cave and went to attend to his needs. Now I'm curious, what do you guys think this means? That Paul, not Paul, that Saul went to attend to his needs. Kind of seems strange. What are you guys' thoughts? What do you think he's doing in the cave? Relieving himself. himself. You're correct. He's going to the bathroom, guys. And it's not just number one, it's number two. Now, this kind of seems strange and weird, right? But we all do it, okay? And Saul has to go to the bathroom. Now, I want you to picture this. Not him going to the bathroom. But (laughs) I want you to think about this. Saul right now has to go use the restroom, and his guards are like, he says to his guards, hey, you guys don't need to follow me. They're like, whew, good, thanks. All right, we'll leave you for a little bit. We'll come back later. He goes into the cave to take care of his business, probably a shovel in his hand, because back then you couldn't go to a restaurant to a toilet. You couldn't go to a porter potty. You had the wilderness, and you had to dig a hole and take care of your business and bury it up. That's what the world was like back then. And so Saul goes into the cave. He relaxes, lets his guard down. And who's in this cave? But David and his mighty men are staying in this cave. One person said constipation was common in kings because of the rich food that they ate. Why is that important? Well, look at verse 4. Then the men of David said to him, this is the day which the Lord has said to you, Behold, I will deliver your enemy into your hand, that you may do to him as it seems good. And then at the end of verse 4, it says, So David arose secretly and cut off the corner of Saul's rope. So Saul here probably couldn't hear David coming up behind him because it's possible he was constipated. We don't know. But it says his men said this to him. Verse 4, David's men carried on a spiritual debate about the will of God for David's life. Now, picture David and his men being deep inside the cave, okay? And they have to whisper because they don't want to talk too loud because noise travels pretty fast in the cave, right? It echoes and it goes down. So his men are whispering, and they are whispering in the cave. They're saying, hey, David. God has brought your enemy here to you in this exact cave so you can kill him. This is the perfect opportunity, perfect opportunity to end all of our problems once and for all. Think about it. Think about all the odds. He could have gone to any cave, but he came to this cave. He's vulnerable right now, away from the men at the camp. This has to be the providence of God. So they're having this spiritual conversation, whispering it to each other. Is this God giving Saul into David's hand? Or is this a temptation? Which is it? See, people interpret events differently depending on what they have in their hearts. Sometimes people like to read into things like, oh, this is what it means. It's interesting, you should ask, Um, it's so cool to see all of your personalities. And each one of us see things differently. Some of you guys are creative. Some of you are more analytical. You like math and all that stuff. Um, Some of you all are different personalities. And each one of us, if I were to show you something, have a different take on it. We all read events differently. And David's men saw this event as an opportunity to take Saul out. They were foaming at the opportunity to get rid of Saul. Because think about it, they've been sleeping in caves. They don't have beds. They don't have like the food. They've been on the run for their lives. They're like, dude, this would all be over in a moment. We could kill him and we can go back to our lives. Everything will just be perfect. Have you guys ever thought about something good happening? And then you think of all the ramifications, like, oh, I could do this, and then you can do this, and then you can do this. And that's what these guys are thinking about. They're like, dude, if we take Saul out, we can go home. We can, David can take the throne. He can be the king and establish the kingdom. All these things were going through their mind. David arose secretly and cut off the corner of Saul's robe. David had the chance To take the throne and to take the crown but the real question is what is god doing in this situation what is god doing by allowing saul to go into this cave to relieve himself and david and his men's being in this cave as well notice verse five now it happened afterward that david david troubled his heart was troubled when he cut off the robe. that word trouble means to strike smite strike dead or injure david was internally injured by his own actions. In other words, he was convicted by what he did. Have you guys ever been there where you did something and as soon as you did it, you instantly regret it? You're like, ah, oh, dang it, I shouldn't have done that. Or maybe you didn't even do it fully. You did it kind of like halfway or a quarter and you're like, man, you, you instantly regret it. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. God, forgive me. David here is convicted, and David's sensitive to the Spirit of God. Why was David convicted? Why? What are the reasons this bothered and troubled David so much? Look at verses 6 and 7. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master the Lord's anointed to stretch out my hand against him, seeing he is the anointed of the Lord. So David restrained his servants with these words and did not allow them to rise against Saul. And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. Verse six, he said, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my master. See, if David were to kill Saul in this moment, it would be murder. Slaying an enemy on the battlefield is one thing. Attacking somebody out of self-defense, that they attacked me and I responded, that's a completely different thing. Attacking somebody unarmed, defenseless, to assassinate a king, that's a, quite a different thing. He calls him the Lord's anointed. He says, I will not stretch my hand out against him. He's the Lord's anointed. David's point was, God is the one who chose him to be on the throne. It'll be God who chooses to take him down. I will not take that decision into my hands. God appointed him, so God has to be the one to dismantle him. I will not do that. I will not raise my hand against him. See, David never saw Saul as his enemy, even though Saul saw David as his enemy throwing spears at him over and over. Notice in verse 7. So David restrained his servants with these words. It seems that David had to get quite forceful here with his words in the Hebrew, using all of his authority. I like different translations how they put it. It says in the NIV, with these words, David sharply rebuked his men. The Hebrew actually reads, So David tore apart his men with these words. Now, picture this. Saul is still in the cave. (laughs) David and his men are now deep in the cave again, and he has part of Saul's robe that he's cut off. And they're arguing. There's this intense arguing, but whispering arguing. He's like, we will not, we will not, I repeat, we will not attack Saul. He's God's anointed. I will not let my hand against him. And there's this intense frustration because these men, I bet you some of these men had their swords drawn. They're like, yes, we're gonna go home. Yes, things are gonna change. We are not gonna to have to be on the run anymore. And they're, they're foaming at the mouth. They're like, let's do this. Yes. And David is going against 600 men. He's going against the majority. Was this providence, or was this temptation? That's the question. Did God deliver Saul to David's hand, or was David being tested? How did David discern between the two? How do you know? How do you know if, if, if it's God, or if it's being kind of a test? I don't know if you've been there before, but you will be one day. See, David was supposed to be king. He was supposed to rule over Israel. Maybe this is how God was going to accomplish that. See, this is what they were struggling with, the how. How are you going to do it, God? How are you going to take me from this shepherd's boy who slayed Goliath, who was in the palace but then got chased off by Saul with spears? How are you going to now bring me to the palace again? And make me king how are you gonna do this and I think that's one of the biggest things that we struggle with it was we struggle with God how are you gonna deliver me out of my sin Lord how are you gonna use this situation how are you gonna use this tragedy how 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 and we ask God how and then we also ask him why two people I know who ask God how are found in Luke chapter 1 an angel came to Zachariah When he was um, in the holies of holies, and he saw this angel and basically said, hey, you and your wife, you're going to have a son. His eyes got big and his mouth dropped. He's like, (laughs) we're old. We're like in our 60s. We're old. We can't have kids. And they've been barren for most of their life. And Zacharias says to the angel, how are you going to do this? But he says it in unbelief. And he goes, to prove my point, you will be mute until he's born. And once he is born, then you shall utter what his name shall be. And so he left from the temple and he was mute. He couldn't say anything. And everyone knew he saw a vision, but they didn't know what it was. And so months go by until John the Baptist is born. And they were going to name him after Zechariah. He says, no, 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 you're going to name him John for John the Baptist, because he's going to pave the way for the Lord. And that same chapter Mary receives a message from an angel as well. And Mary, the angel says to Mary, hey, you are going to bear the Messiah. And her eyes get big and her jaw drops. (laughs) She's like, huh? And then she says, how is that possible? I'm not married. I've never known a man like that before. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you. We struggle with the how. God, how is this possible? How are you going to do this? At this moment, and David could take the throne and the kingdom right now, but was that the right way? Was that God's way? One commentator said, "David's son, Jesus Christ, later on, faced the same test. Look at Matthew chapter four, verses six, or verses eight through nine. Again, the devil took him up upon an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus was tempted three times by Satan himself. And he says, hey, look at all this. He takes him onto this mountain. And it's not just like, here's like these cities, like all these nations will be yours. I bet you it's more supernatural than that, I believe. He says, look at all these kingdoms, taking them all over. The whole entire world is actually under Satan's rule and reign. You know why? Because when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they gave up that rule and that authority to Satan. So Satan actually has the power to give it to Jesus at this moment because it's under his control. And that's what 1 John chapter 5 says. that The whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so Satan's offering something to Jesus here in this moment. See, the devil was offering... Jesus, what was in the will of God for Jesus's life. But Jesus knew that God promised him all the kingdoms and all the splendor, but it has to be done in God's will, in God's timing. See, here's the temptation, guys. This is the temptation we all struggle with. Will we cut corners? Will we cheat? Will we try to get out of this? Will we take the easy way out? That is the temptation. Satan's saying, hey, Jesus, you don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to face death. You don't have to have your back ripped open with whips. You don't have to have nails pierced through your hands. All you have to do is just bow down and worship me, and I will give you all of this. It'll be yours, and it'll be good. Here's the easy way out. You and I are constantly faced with this temptation. Will we take the easy way out? Will we surrender? Will we fall and crack under the pressure? The easy way out is not the right way out. See, it's the hard path. One of my Bible college professors said, everyone has this crossroads. There's a fork in the road. A fork in the road is not an actual fork, guys. <laughs> it's this, it's, it splits two different ways. And you have the world's path and you have God's path. The world's path in the very beginning is very easy. And you go off this side, life seems so good, so well, but then it gets harder at the end of the road. And you see the ramifications of your actions and the damage you've caused. The right path is actually harder in the beginning. But then when you continue to grow in Christ, the later part is easier because you've learned to walk with the Lord. You get to hear His voice, and you get to sense His presence. You get to have the fellowship of believers. You get to enjoy the importance and intimacy of His word and Him speaking to you through His word. What are we gonna choose when we are faced with this temptation? Are you gonna cut corners? And you know what, this bothers me sometimes. I hear students cheating on tests and different things, even college students. Oh, they're like, oh yeah, I just looked this up on this thing. I'm like, then are you not wanting to learn? I had friends and people I knew in Bible college who cheated on Bible college stuff. And in my mind, I'm like, then do you not want to learn? What are you doing here? If you're you're paying for this and you're cheating, are you just wanting the certificate? Go buy a certificate. Go forge one. I don't know. (laughs) Why are you like, jipping yourself on the experience of learning and discovering. Do the work, because in the end, you will reap the benefits of it. But if you actually take the easy way out over and over and over and over, you're shooting yourself in the foot. You're damaging yourself. And I was homeschooled. Homeschool is the easiest thing to cheat, guys. Come on, let's be real. <laughs> you, can, you guys, I know you guys' generation, it's so easy to cheat. Dude, just Everyone's using AI now, right? Just you allow AI to write your paper, but the funny thing is people will do it, and then they'll copy and paste it, but they won't take out the, hey, the AI written this part, and they'll get failed. It's funny. Uh, my sister's in a college. She works right out of college, and students do that all the time. But it's because we want to take the easy way out. We want the shortcut. Don't take the shortcut, guys. Temptation. According to Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, the first temptation in the Bible, in Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, we see three things in common with temptations. These three, seeing, desiring, and taking. Seeing, desiring, and taking. Eve, when she was tempted by the serpent, saw the fruit. She desired it, and then she took it. In Joshua chapter 7, they went in to conquer Jericho, and this guy Achan, he saw this Babylonian garment and a bunch of gold. He saw it, he desired it, and then he took it, and he hid it. And so this is how temptation works. Now to be tempted is not a sin. When does it in this process become a sin? And actually from desiring and taking, somewhere in between there. Because even Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lust or a man with lust, it's as if you've committed adultery in your heart. If you are angry at somebody, it's as if you've committed murder in your heart. So it's somewhere between the desiring and the taking that it can become sin. Just because you are tempted does not mean you've actually sinned. Jesus has been tempted in every point, but passed it and didn't give in. He never sinned. We've, on the other hand, have been tempted and have given in over and over. How do we respond to these temptations? Well, if you were to study Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was tempted, you actually have several principles, truths in that passage that help us. And I'll point out a couple. Number one, resisting. By resisting the devil James chapter four, verse seven says, therefore submit to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. That's a promise, guys. When we submit to the Lord, submit to his word, submit to his will, submit to his way, we, the devil, will flee. And as we resist the devil and put up our hands, say, no, I'm not going to go in that direction and go in the opposite direction towards the Lord, he will flee from us. Jesus had to do this three times, resisting the devil over and over and over. We will have to constantly resist temptation over and over. And you have a promise. Every time there's a temptation, you have an exit sign. There's always a way out with every temptation. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 9 says, Be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him steadfastly in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings which are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Resist him. Don't surrender. Don't submit to him. The second thing Jesus teaches us about temptation is you and I only have one offensive weapon. We only have one tool in our arsenal that we can fight back with. Every other piece of armor that's mentioned in Ephesians chapter 6 is all defensive. The breastplate, defensive. Shield of faith, defensive. Belt of truth, defensive. Um, shod your feet with the gospel, defensive. helmet of salvation, defensive. The only offensive weapon we have is the word of God. And Jesus used that every time against Satan. Not only that, guys, out of all the books he could have quoted from, he quoted from Deuteronomy. Has anybody read Deuteronomy in here? Oh, really? Dang, that's cool. I didn't read Deuteronomy until like later on in life. The only book I really read in junior high was the Gospel of John, I think. And that's it, because I was a terrible reader. Deuteronomy just means second law. Jesus quoted from that book more than any other book in the Bible. And he did it with Satan. Here's the verse kind of reference. Psalm 119, verse 11. He says, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. If you struggle with temptation and giving in to sin, my next question is, are you in the Word of God? Not only that, being in the Word of God is important, but it's more important that the Word of God is in you. So are you allowing God's Word to saturate your heart? Are you writing it on the tablets of your heart and on your mind? Are you memorizing it and are you meditating on it? That way, when there's temptation, all of a sudden you can be like, and you can block it with the Word of God. One of my favorite verses that actually, when I had, you guys didn't know this, so this is, some, this is not culture, but some history for you, I guess. When phones came out, um, I had a flip phone. That was my first phone. And the way you texted, there you only had the numbers. And you had to hit the number like three times to get the, nu- the letter you wanted. And it was a long process. But it sometimes would memorize kind of certain phrases and kind of get to know how you talk. I would literally put this one word in, and it would type out the whole entire Bible verse for me. And it was Jude, chapter 1. There's only one chapter, verse 24. It says, now to him who is able... um, Oh, I'm getting confused with another one. Oh, my goodness, I'm going blank. I'm going to read it. (laughs) now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. In other words, Jesus is the one that can keep me from sinning. He's the one that can keep me from stumbling. And I would send that verse to multiple people so much that my phone memorized it. You have the capacity and the power to memorize scripture. You might be thinking, well, I have a bad memory. No, that's an excuse. Make it a point to saturate your heart and your mind with Scripture. And it will change and transform you. One thing that we learned from David as well in this passage is when you're actually truly seeking after God's own heart, you won't want anything else. You won't want the power. You won't want the glory. You won't want the position. You won't want the throne. You only want what the Lord wants. David resists and restrains his men with his words. Now, verses 8 through 15, we see David's speech. Before we read this section, I'm going to do something a little different. As I read through this section, I'm going to assign some of you guys things to look for as we go through this thing. So I need five volunteers. And if not, you'll be voluntold. So it's very simple. I'll go through these and then um, you guys can uh, help me out with this. The things that we want to look for is, how does David refer to Saul? The second thing, how does David refer to himself? The third, how does David refer to the Lord? Number four, what does David's body language communicate? And number five, how many times does David say in one form or another, I will not kill you? Do I have any volunteers who would like to help me in this process? If not, I will choose. We got one. All right. You are going to do, how does David refer to Saul? I need another person. Matthew. Thank you. You are going to do, uh, how does David refer to himself? Okay. That's what you're going to look for. Who else would like to help? You already raised your hand. Charis. um, You are going to do number three. How does David, or he, refer to the Lord? Okay. So just look at how he refers to the Lord in that passage. Who else? Caleb, you will do, what does David's body communicate, Body language communicate? And number five, who got it? Come on, give me a volunteer. Anybody? It's not that hard. It's just really just listening and paying attention as we go through the text. All right, Gianno. You will do, how many times does David say, I will not kill you? Now, it doesn't say it that way, but... Look for those phrases, okay? So now, just because they're looking for each one of these doesn't mean you can't help them out. So I want all of us to be looking for these things as we read through David's speech, okay? And really paint the picture in your mind. I'm gonna end at, or start at verse seven where it says And Saul got up from the cave and went on his way. And David arose afterward and went out of the cave and called out to Saul, Saul, my lord, the king. And Saul looked behind him. David stooped down with his face to the earth and bowed down. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of the men who say, Indeed, David seeks you harm. Look this day. Your eyes have seen that the Lord delivered you today in my hand in the cave. And someone urged me to kill you, but my eyes spared you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. Moreover, that's verse 11. My father see, moreover, my father see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. And see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand and i have not sinned against you yet you hunt my life to take it let the lord judge between you and me and let the lord avenge me on you but my hand shall not be against you as the proverb of the ancients say wickedness proceeds from wicked the wicked but my hand shall not be against you after whom the king of israel come after whom the king of israel come out whom do you pursue? A dead dog? A flea? Verse 15. Therefore, let the Lord be judge, and judge between you and me, and see my, uh, plead my case and deliver me out of your hand. Now, the first question, how does Saul, or David refer to Saul? He refers to Saul as king and the Lord's anointed. Is there anything else in that chapter he refers to Saul as? There's two more things, actually. He says, my Lord and Father. He calls him Father, Lord, King, and the Lord's anointed. Now, what do you think that communicates is communicating? Anybody? Anybody? This is communicating that David highly respects Saul. This is how David thinks about Saul. He didn't have any evil thought. He says, you're the king. You're the Lord's anointed. You're actually even my father, because he married his daughter, basically his father-in-law. He says, I don't have any ill feelings towards you. He respected him. Saul was never his enemy, and he meant these things. The second thing, How does David refer to himself? Who did I give that to? That was Matthew, right? How does David refer to himself? Verse 14. Did you find it? Can anybody help him out? A dead dog dog and a flea. He's like... He calls himself a dead dog and a flea. Now, why is that significant? Have you ever seen a flea before? They're small. They're little. He says, you're going throughout all of Israel chasing a flea down, something so small, something so insignificant, when you as the king have more important matters to deal with. He says, I'm a dead dog. Now, it's not that he viewed himself so lowly, but he was humble. He says, why are you chasing me down? Someone that is not important, that is someone that is so small. Now, the third question, how does David refer to the Lord? Who did I give that to? Caris. How does David refer to the Lord? Verses 12 and 15. Judge, correct. So he says, you judge between me and Saul. Because there's no better judge than the Lord. He sees all the motives. He sees all the facts. He is not partial. He can tell you the correct verdict. And he also sees the Lord. He says, "Let uh, let the Lord avenge me on you. So he says, let the Lord take vengeance. He gives his case and his concern over to the Lord and he's confident that God will bring vengeance on Saul for the way Saul has behaved and treated David. But David wasn't going to touch God's anointed. In verse 15, he refers to the Lord as my judge again. This is two times. Basically, David is trusting the Lord with the outcome. He says, my life is in God's hands, and he's confident that God would bring justice in his timing. He rather waits for God's gift than grab God's gift. And that's what we got to be careful, because there's certain things that God wants to give us. He says, David, I want to give you the kingdom. I want to give you the throne, but not yet. And sometimes we grab at things that the Lord's telling us to wait for. As I was just even saying that in my head, a verse came to my mind, and I would exhort you junior hires. A lot of you junior hires, if you go to public school, a lot of public schoolers get in relationships They start hooking up and hanging out, having boyfriends and girlfriends. The Song of Solomon says, do not awaken love until it's time. So I would encourage you, don't reach after things that the Lord does not want you to have right now. Wait for God's timing. His timing is perfect. But going back to him being the judge, Romans chapter 12 verse 19 says, David lived this out before it was even written. He says, beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. He hands it over. He goes, I'm not going to take vengeance. God's going to do that for me. And he lived that out. Now, number four, what does David's body language communicate? Who did I give that to? That was you, Caleb. Caleb. True. He bowed, showing that he was submissive. His face is to the ground. Now, we don't know how far Saul got out of the cave before David came. Maybe it was from here to that wall. Maybe it was from here 10 yards. We don't know. If it was close and David bowed within like 10 feet of him, Saul could have drawn his sword and killed David in that moment. He was submissive, he was humble, he was respectful. His body language communicated all of what he already said, which is powerful because there's been a rumor going around. All of Saul's men think David is evil doing something bad. And those things are being dismantled by David's words and his body language. Last but not least, number five, how many times does David say, I will not kill you? Gianno out four is the correct answer. I wrote down five, but then I found one as I was reading through as well. Four four times he says, I will not put my hand against you. I will not put my hand against you. I will not kill you. I will not do that. He's assuring Saul that he will not take his life. That's more than Saul deserved. That is behaving like a godly person. Because David is a man after God's own heart. But notice verse 11. I want to point something out. He says, Moreover, my father, see, yes, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For in that which I cut off the corner of your robe did not kill you. Know and see that there is neither evil nor rebellion in my hand that I may have not sinned against you. Yet you hunt down my life. David had no rebellion or evil in his heart. But check this out. Can you imagine? What was the shock of Saul's face? when David pulls out the corner of his robe, and all of a sudden Saul goes like this and he pulls up his robe, he's like, oh snap, he's not lying. He literally could have killed me because my robe has been cut off. He's shocked. But I wonder if in the very back of Saul's mind, the words ring through his brain that Samuel told him in the very beginning. If you guys remember back in 1 Samuel chapter 15, when Saul was being disobedient, and basically God said, the kingdom is no longer yours. It says, and Samuel turned to go away from Saul, and Saul seized him by the edge of his robe, and he tore it. So Saul said to him, the king has tore, the Lord has tore the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to your neighbor, a neighbor of yours who is better than you. So get it, the torn robe? When Saul's trying to grab on, he's trying to hold something he cannot keep. And God says, I'm going to tear this away from you. And David says, hey, I have your garment. I have your robe. By David cutting off the royal robe, David was declaring that the kingdom had been transferred to him. And Saul knew that. Now let's look at Saul's response in verses 16 through 22. Follow along with me if you guys would. I know you guys are tired, but sit up straight and we'll get through this. Verse 16. So it was when David had finished speaking these words to Saul that Saul says, Is that your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. And he said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have rewarded me with good, whereas I have rewarded you with evil. And you have sworn or you have shown me this day how you have dealt with me. When the Lord delivered me into your hands, you did not kill me. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safely? Therefore, may the Lord reward you with good for, you, for what you have done to me this day. And I now know indeed that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Therefore, swear to me uh, by the Lord that you will not cut off my descendants after me, and that you will not destroy my name from my father's house. So David swore to Saul, and Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. What do you guys think about Saul's response? Do you think Saul is genuine, or is he being superficial in his response? What are you guys' thoughts? Do you think the tears are superficial and he's putting on a show? Yes? You're correct. Saul here basically lies through his teeth. He's caught. He's a madman. He doesn't know how to respond in this moment. Because actually, if you fast forward another like one or two chapters... He's hunting down David again. So he goes back on his work that he promised to do. It's a superficial response, it's temporary. He's a good actor. And maybe you guys are good actors as well. You know how to turn on the waterworks. All of a sudden, you just flip the switch and tears start coming down your face. And you're really sorrowful. And you're like, I'm so sorry, please forgive me. But then they walk away, you just got him again. Sometimes we're good at that. Sometimes we know how to manipulate people, which is not good to do. David wasn't fooled, though. Notice, David did not go home. He went back to a stronghold. He says, I don't trust Saul. One moment. So here, David has had many battles, but in this cave was probably his greatest victory, even greater than Goliath, that David restrained himself and his men. It says in proverbs 16 32 better to be patient than powerful better to have self-control than conquer a city so he says self-control is more important than conquering a city do you have self-control self-control doesn't come apart from the holy spirit and david was in tune with the spirit of god he knew in his heart that he should not have even cut the rope he felt convicted So when you do feel convicted, apologize to the Lord. Share with the Lord your heart and say, God, forgive me. Know that he has forgiven you if you've asked. See, David was patient. He had self-control. He didn't grab after the power or the position. He left that in God's hands. He knew God's will and trusted in God's timing and how God would bring that about because he was a man after God's own heart. He wasn't after the power, the position, the authority, revenge. He didn't even want to accomplish God's will in his flesh. See, this is our problem, I think. Sometimes we know a little bit about God's will, but we don't know how to get to the other side. And we try to do things in our flesh, like Abraham and Sarah. For those that aren't familiar with the story, and I'll kind of wrap it up here. Abraham and Sarah were taken from Ur of the Chaldeans, And they're about 75 years old to the promised land. And God says, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. And they're like, sweet, we believe it. But we have no kids. We've never had kids. How is this going to happen? And they're trusting God in the process. God's doing things. And they're relying on their own strength from time to time. But then all of a sudden, some time passes. And they're now like getting older and older. And they're like, dude, how is God going to do this? And all of a sudden, Sarah gets a light bulb. Ding! I got an idea. You know how when we went to Egypt to avoid that famine and we got a a, a maidservant? You should sleep with my maidservant, get her pregnant, and maybe that's how God's going to bring about his promise in all of our descendants. And you know what Abraham does? He says, sounds like a good plan. Let's go ahead with it. He doesn't even object. She gets pregnant. They have the kid. His name is Ishmael. And the Lord speaks to him and says, this is not my will. This is not how I will carry out my will. I do not acknowledge this son as being the promised son that I gave you. He will have a great nation from him, but not the nation that I promised and all the things that I've said to you. Because you try to accomplish this in your own flesh. And that's what we do. We take matters into our own hands and we try to do things in our own strength. When we need to just stop trying, we need to just trust the Lord. Stop striving and abide. When we abide in Jesus and his word, things will naturally happen. Your thoughts will naturally change. You will be transformed by the inside out. Sarah and Abraham learned this hard lesson. They tried to accomplish God's will in their flesh. David resisted that temptation. Imagine if David were actually to take Saul, slice off his head like he did with Goliath and come out with the head. Who knows? Maybe somebody might have done the same thing to David later on and execute him in the same way. You, you, what you sow is what you're going to reap. And what David is sowing right now is seeds of righteousness. He's behaving like a king. And you know what God is saying? God is possibly saying, I can possibly trust this man with my power, with my authority, and with my people. He's being tested. You are going to be tested as well. You will be tested with this temptation of, will you take a shortcut? Will you take the easy way out? Don't take the easy way out. Be after God's heart, and He will give you discernment on the difference between what is good and what is best. And then he'll give you the power and the ability to do what pleases him.